0: Throughout Irish folklore, probably the most famous magical creature of them all is the fairy. But contrary to what Disney might tell you, not all fairies are cute tiny women with wings who fly around spreading fairy dust and bringing good fortune. According to the original folklore, some fairies run the gamut from being simply mischievous all the way to being outright evil, doing some of the most terrible things imaginable. There's one particular type of fairy we've talked about before in this show called a changeling. This is an ugly or physically deformed fairy that is placed in the beds of kidnapped human children, taking their lives for their own. The idea that fairies like to steal children and replace them with another is usually done out of cruelty and an outright hatred against humans. Although stories of changelings are just fairy tales, hence the name, Something much closer to the truth has occurred several times throughout history. To a devoted parent, there can be nothing more terrifying than the thought of losing one of your children. It's practically impossible for anyone who hasn't experienced it personally to comprehend the level of terror and grief that occurs when a child goes missing. Suddenly, there's this empty space that was once full of joy. An empty room. An empty seat at the dinner table pile of toys that will never be played with but although the Irish changeling myth is just a myth it also holds a dark truth to it for in reality there have been a few occasions throughout history where a child has gone missing only for them to suddenly return but there's just one problem it's not the same child in this episode I'm gonna tell you about three such stories In which grieving parents lose their children, only to have them replaced with their very own changelings. I'm Nate Hale, and some people call me the Banshee of the podcasting world, and this is The Conspirators. Part 1 Pauline Picard. On April 6, 1922, Marianne Picard sent her two-year-old daughter Pauline out to play on the family farm, near the village of Guasaladou, in the region of Brittany in northwest France. It was safe and quiet on the farm, and Marianne never worried about her little girl going out to play by herself. That is until one evening when Marianne called Pauline to come in for supper. But Pauline didn't answer. Marianne and her husband Francois Picard went out looking for Pauline, only to quickly realize that their toddler was missing. On that day, more than 150 volunteers combed the Picard family farm and surrounding woods looking for the little girl. Pauline's parents feared the worst. They thought that Pauline might have gotten lost in the forest and either succumbed to the elements or perhaps was eaten by a wild boar. Yet as the week stretched on, many people around town began to find it odd that none of the toddler's remains were found. Soon talk began to spread that perhaps the little girl may have been abducted. Rumors spread throughout the village that Pauline might have been taken by a mysterious chimney sweep who had passed through the area. Other stories mention a pair of strangers who were spotted around the farm at the time of the girl's disappearance. Still others suggested that the little girl might have been stolen by gypsies. But the Romani people had a long history of getting blamed for everything bad. Even though there was no evidence that any of them were even in the area at the time of Pauline's disappearance. About a month after Pauline disappeared... The police arrived at the farm with a photograph of a little girl who'd been found wandering alone in the city of Cherbourg, about 350 kilometers away. Police officers in Cherbourg took this little girl to a local hospice for safekeeping. When the authorities showed a photo of the girl to Pauline's mother, she instantly burst into tears and declared that this was her daughter. But the Picards were baffled how their toddler could have traveled so far away on her own. But they remained nonetheless hopeful as they boarded a train to Cherbourg in order to retrieve their little Pauline. But after spending about two hours with the girl, they soon realized that she didn't recognize them. Although this little girl did resemble Pauline, she didn't act like her. Medically speaking, there appeared to be nothing wrong with the child. But the girl refused to talk to the Picards. And when the parents tried talking to her in their native Breton language... She appeared not to understand them. Another red flag for the Picards was that the clothing the little girl was dressed in was unrecognizable to them. Soon the Picards began to have their doubts that this was actually Pauline. But nonetheless, they felt sorry for the little girl and ultimately decided to take her home with them in the hope that maybe they were somehow mistaken and this really was their daughter. They thought that perhaps the girl's odd behavior was the result of trauma and malnourishment, when the Picards brought the little girl home, several of her eight siblings claimed to recognize her as their sister. At the same time though, the little girl continued to act strangely around them, as if both this place and this family was unfamiliar to her. Then at the end of May, 1922, a cyclist riding near a field about a mile from Guasa Lodu made a grisly discovery. He discovered the decomposing body of a tiny girl She was naked with her head, hands, and feet cut off. Nearby, the cyclist found a pile of carefully folded clothing. It was evident someone had deliberately placed these items there. The cyclist rushed to inform the local gendarme. The police returned to the scene with several locals in tow, including the Picards, who instantly recognized the clothes as the same dress and other items of clothing that Pauline had been wearing on the day of her disappearance. Soon after, a human head was found nearby. But this only raised more questions. For one thing, they were unable to identify the person the head belonged to, because scavenging foxes had partially devoured the face. But despite this, it was also immediately obvious that this was not the head of the little girl, but rather that of a fully grown man. The New York Times reported that the horrific scene had been searched multiple times over the weeks following Pauline Picard's disappearance which indicated that the bodies must have been placed there at a later time. The local medical examiners were unable to determine a cause of death for the little girl. They said that marks in the bones could have either been cuts or bite marks from scavengers. Just a few days before the body was discovered, a local farmer named Eve Martin began acting suspiciously. When he approached the Picards and asked them if they had found Pauline, he then made the bizarre proclamation that, "'God is fair. I am guilty.'" immediately before rushing away. The following day, Martin was committed to a lunatic asylum. Police attempted to question him, although he was beyond giving any sort of coherent information by that point. Now, of course, this story does seem to indicate the man may have been guilty of Pauline's murder, but newspapers later reported that the man had suffered a traumatic brain injury prior to showing up on the Picard family farm, which could also explain his bizarre behavior. In the end, there was simply no evidence that Eve Martin did anything to Pauline. Police also investigated an umbrella salesman named Christophe Karamon. He actually did some work for the Picards and even ate breakfast with them on the morning of Pauline's disappearance. Karamon seemed unusually affectionate toward Pauline, often cuddling her and telling her he could find her a good home in another town. One witness even came forward claiming they'd heard Karamon tell Pauline he was planning on taking her away. Police arrested him but eventually released him after he provided them with a solid alibi. An Algerian newspaper later published a rather dubious article which contained further information about Eve Martin, the farmer who told the Picards he was guilty. The article claimed that although Martin didn't actually kill Pauline, he did know who the real killer was, stating that the actual murderer was a family member named Rong Remorpe although no other sources have been found saying just who this mysterious wrong Remorpi was. Nor is it clear where the Algerian newspaper got its information from. A French newspaper indicated that a different family member might have been abusing the little girl. One article suggested that Pauline's father Francois was prone to violent outbursts and might have accidentally murdered his own daughter. At the same time, there was another theory that gained traction among the local townspeople that a rich couple might have kidnapped Pauline to replace their deceased daughter. The story was further embellished to include an inheritance that would be lost if the couple didn't produce a daughter. This rumor claimed that the decomposing body of the little girl was actually the rich couple's dead daughter, and not Pauline. But the police dismissed this theory out of hand since there was simply no evidence supporting any of it. A local judge ultimately determined the body to be that of Pauline Picard. Despite the overwhelming evidence of foul play, the judge ruled that the girl's cause of death was accidental. There was never any clear explanation given as to why there were body parts of two people at the scene. As of October 2017, no genetic testing was ever done on the remains to determine conclusively if they were indeed those of Pauline Picard. Meanwhile, the Picards came to believe they had made a terrible mistake. They sent the little girl they had brought home away to an orphanage in Cherbourg. Within a couple months, she was speaking full sentences in the Breton language, which prompted a local newspaper to once again declare her to be the real Pauline. She was eventually placed in the care of some Franciscan nuns, where she was given the name Marie Louise Pauline. She died in the sister's care during a measles outbreak in 1924. Part 2 Bobby Dunbar On August 23, 1912, Percy and Leslie Dunbar loaded up their two young sons in the family roadster and headed from their home in Opelousas, Louisiana, on a camping trip at nearby Swayze Lake. That evening, at some point while the rest of the family played in the water, four year old Bobby Dunbar wandered away from the campsite and vanished. A search party was formed and they were able to track the little boy's steps to the edge of the lake. It was initially presumed that Bobby fell in and drowned. But then Bobby's hat was found a considerable distance away in the opposite direction from the lake. After that, several other darker theories began to swirl. Swayze Lake was teeming with alligators which led some people to speculate that the boy might have been eaten. There were also heavy woods surrounding the lake where it would have been easy for a little boy to get lost. Both the local and state police became involved in the search. They caught and dissected several alligators expecting to find the boy's remains inside. They even dynamited the lake hoping it might eject the body from the water. But the little boy's remains were never found. Several people began to speculate that Bobby had been kidnapped. A $6,000 reward was offered, the equivalent of about $160,000 today but no credible information about the missing child ever came in. Then about eight months later, the Dunbars received some good news. On April 13, 1913, a boy matching Bobby's description was discovered in Mississippi. A traveling handyman named William Cantwell Walters was spotted with a young boy who resembled Bobby. When the authorities questioned him, Walters claimed the boy's name was Charles Bruce Anderson, and he was the illegitimate child of his brother and a woman who cared for his parents in North Carolina named Julia Anderson. Walters told police that Julia left the boy in his care and was allowing him to travel with him. Several local residents confirmed Walters' story, but the police still arrested him and took the boy into custody. Julia Anderson came forward and confirmed that she had granted permission for her son to accompany Walters, although she said that it had just been for a couple days while she visited her sister. Strangely, the mother never reported her son was missing despite the fact that he was in Walter's custody for more than a year by that point. The authorities thought the whole story was suspicious. Meanwhile, Percy and Leslie Dunbar were ecstatic over the possibility that their Bobby might have been found. They took a train to Mississippi to see if they could identify him. Leslie was brought before the little boy while he was sleeping. Depending on the source, you'll find differing accounts of exactly what followed. One version claims the boy awoke suddenly and cried out, Mother! Then when he reached out for Lessie, she fainted. Another version claims that the boy woke up startled and began to cry. Lessie then took a step back and said, I do not know. I am not quite sure. You can find a number of competing newspaper articles with differing opinions over whether the Dunbars recognized the boy or not. One article stated that Percy thought the boy's eyes appeared smaller than Bobby's. Some articles said the little boy didn't seem to recognize the Dunbars either. But in the end, Lessie did ultimately declare that this was indeed Bobby after examining some moles and scars on the boy's body. A judge said that this identification was good enough for him, and he sent the little boy home with the Dunbars to Opelousas, where they were greeted with a parade and a brass band. Although this should have been a joyous occasion, not everyone around town was convinced that this really was Bobby Dunbar. Several residents were concerned that despite Bobby only being missing for eight months, the only way his own mother had been able to identify him was through marks on his body. Later on, a newspaper paid to bring Julia Anderson to Louisiana if she could identify the boy as her son. Bobby and four other boys about the same age were brought in one by one to meet Anderson. She didn't recognize any of them, and none of the boys acted like they recognized her either. Anderson asked for a second chance. And the following day she declared that the boy everyone believed to be bobby was really her son bruce but like leslie dunbar she was only able to tell for certain after doing her own examination of some of the boys moles as well by that point public opinion was not in anderson's favor it didn't sit well with a lot of people the way julie anderson failed to declare her son missing for more than a year some newspaper articles described her as a woman of loose morals one even flat out described her as a prostitute The authorities didn't believe her story and they sent her packing back to North Carolina without the boy she kept telling them was her son. In 1914, William Cantwell Walters was convicted of kidnapping. This despite several witnesses coming forward declaring that the boy had been traveling in his company long before Bobby Dunbar disappeared. Walters later won a new trial on appeal. But because of the expense of a new trial, authorities refused to try him again. He was released from prison after serving two years. The boy everyone identified as Bobby remained living with the Dunbars. He grew up, got married, and had four children of his own. He died in 1966. Throughout his life, he always maintained that he had been kidnapped and that he was the real Bobby Dunbar. But then in 2004, Bobby's son, Bob Dunbar Jr., agreed to a DNA test. His daughter, Margaret Dunbar Cutwright, had become interested in the strange series of events surrounding her grandfather. Bob Dunbar Jr.'s DNA was compared to DNA from his cousin, the son of Bobby Dunbar's younger brother. The results were conclusive. Bob Dunbar Jr. was not related to any member of the Dunbar family. It turned out, Julia Anderson had been right all along. The boy everyone identified as Bobby Dunbar really was her son, Bruce. The Anderson family was jubilant when they heard the news. They saw this as a vindication not only for Julia, but for the Walters family as well. To this day, no one knows what happened to the real Bobby Dunbar. Possibly he did fall into the lake and drown, or perhaps he really was eaten by alligators. Some journalists theorized that Percy and Lesie Dunbar had somehow killed the boy and that they had made up a story to cover their tracks. Then, when they got handed a replacement son, they went to great lengths to hide what they'd done. But there's just no evidence to support this either. Authorities did find footprints leading away from the lake. They also received some reports that a suspicious-looking man had been seen carrying the boy away. But these stories were never followed up on, and there's no way to confirm them today. So like the story of Pauline Picard, the mystery of Bobby Dunbar will forever remain unsolved. Part 3. Walter Collins For many decades throughout the 20th century, the Los Angeles Police Department had a pretty lousy reputation for corruption and abuse of power. Many officers were on the take from local mobsters, while others were notoriously brutal when extracting confessions. Back during the late 1920s, then-Police Chief James Davis stirred up even more controversy when he created a 50-man gun squad to go after the city's criminal element with the express order to bring in the perps, dead or alive. This didn't go over well in the press, who were constantly publishing articles describing the LAPD as a bunch of thugs no better than the criminals they were supposed to arrest. So it was considered to be a major public relations success for the department when in 1928 they reunited single mother Christine Collins with her 9-year-old son Walter who had gone missing five months earlier. The only problem was, Christine didn't believe this actually was her son. Walter went missing on March 10, 1928, after Christine Collins gave him a dime to go see a movie, only he never returned. Christine was considered unusual for the time in that she was a single mother who was managing to support herself and her son without a man in her life. Her ex-husband was in jail for running a speakeasy. In order to make ends meet, Collins got a job working at the telephone company. She prided herself on the non-emotional, business-like way she conducted herself when dealing with men in positions of authority. When nine-year-old Walter didn't return home, Christine reported his disappearance to the LAPD. The story ran in the Los Angeles Times and within a few weeks, the articles had changed their tone from being a hopeful search for a lost boy to darker stories about how the police were dragging Lincoln Lake for Walter's body. During the days that followed, a number of tips poured in, probably the most prominent of which was when a gas station attendant in Glendale, reported seeing what appeared to be a dead boy wrapped in newspaper in the backseat of a car, driven by a, quote, foreign-looking couple. Other sightings of a boy fitting Walter's description stretched as far away as San Francisco. The boy's own father, Walter J.S. Collins, who was serving time in Folsom State Prison, suggested that a former inmate might have kidnapped his son out of revenge. Meanwhile, the case grew colder and colder, and the LAPD were taking a beating in the press for not finding Walter. Then in August 1928, a boy claiming to be Walter Collins turned up in DeKalb, Illinois. The authorities brought the boy to Los Angeles and presented him to Christine Collins, But after seeing him for the first time christine tried telling everyone that she didn't think this was her son but the los angeles police were desperate for a public relations win so they insisted to christine that she was mistaken and that this really was her son walter captain jj jones even famously told her that she should take this boy home and try him out after three weeks christine marched back into the police station with a set of walter's dental records along with a stack of signed statements from people who personally knew the boy, and they all agreed that this wasn't him. Christine insisted that the young man from Illinois was an imposter, and she demanded action. Well, Christine did receive a response from the LAPD, just not the one she was expecting. Officers responded by branding Christine Collins as a lunatic who was out to embarrass the department. They insisted the boy they gave her was indeed her son, and that she was just out to shirk her motherly duties. They then took things a step further and had Christine committed to a mental hospital using a policy called Code 12, which allowed them to rid themselves of troublesome citizens. But then a monkey wrench got thrown into their plans. You see, during the time Christine was institutionalized, the so-called Walter finally admitted that she had been telling the truth, and that he really was an imposter. A handwriting expert compared writing samples the boy made with that of Walter Collins and determined they didn't match. The boy's real name was Arthur Hutchins. He was 12 years old and he decided to impersonate Walter after someone back in Illinois told him he looked a little like the real Walter Collins. Hutchins wanted a free trip to Hollywood in the hope of meeting his cowboy idol, Tom Mix. The police now realized they had made a grave error. Christine Collins was released from the institution 10 days after Hutchins confessed to being an imposter. She filed a lawsuit against the LAPD and police captain J.J. Jones. The court ruled in her favor and christine was awarded ten thousand eight hundred dollars in damages although neither the department nor jones ever paid up meanwhile the police remained no closer to finding the still missing walter collins as it turns out walter collins wasn't the only boy who went missing around the same time either on may 16, 1928 10 year old nelson winslow and his 12 year old brother lewis also disappeared on their way home to pomona Not long after, their parents received some strange letters purportedly written by them. The first said they were heading to Mexico, and the second said they planned to stay missing in order to become famous. At the same time, the police didn't make any connection between Walter Collins and the missing Winslow boys at first. Nor did they connect these cases with the headless body of a Latino boy they found in La Puente in February. They also didn't connect any of these crimes to a report they received about a man mistreating a child at a poultry farm in Wineville, but they should have. In September 1928, a Canadian woman named Winifred Clark contacted the U.S. authorities to report that her nephew had kidnapped her 15-year-old son, Sanford Wesley Clark, and took him to his California chicken ranch where he was holding him against his will. In August of 1928, Sanford Clark's 19-year-old sister Jessie became worried about her brother after he was taken by their 21-year-old uncle, Gordon Stewart Northcott, to live on his ranch in Wineville, California. Jessie decided to visit the ranch to check on Sanford personally, and she was shocked by what she discovered. Found out that her uncle had been physically abusing her brother. Then, Sanford made an even more disturbing confession when he admitted to her that he had helped his Uncle Gordon murder four children. Jessie went to the American consul and told them what her brother said. The consul wrote a letter detailing their concerns to the Los Angeles Police Department. But instead of going to investigate the allegations of four murdered children themselves, the LAPD claimed that this was a situation more suited for the United States Immigration Service. On August 31st, the Immigration Service sent two inspectors to the ranch. When Gordon Northcott saw the two agents driving up the long road leading to the ranch, he fled into the tree line along the edge of his property. But before he ran away, he told Sanford to stall them as long as he could. He said if he didn't, he would shoot them all with his rifle from a distance. Sanford managed to stall the agents for a couple hours while Northcott made his getaway. Eventually though, Sanford broke down and confessed to everything he knew. Sanford Clark admitted to police that his uncle had been physically and sexually abusing him the entire time he was in his custody. He also told them that he had personally witnessed Sanford abusing and murdering Walter Collins, the Winslow brothers, the Latino boy in La Puente, and several others as well. He also said that sometimes his uncle even forced him to participate in the children's abuse. Sanford said that when Gordon Stewart Northcott got bored of the children he kidnapped, He would chop them up with an axe in the incubator room where he kept his chicks. He would then bury the bodies in quicklime to destroy the remains. Sanford claimed that he had participated in the murder of Walter Collins because the boy had seen Northcott help another man kill his mining partner. Sanford told police where they could find a series of graves next to the chicken coop which contained the remains of Walter Collins and the Winslow boys. Police dug up the earth where Sanford told them, although there wasn't much left to find. Just a few bone fragments, and that's about all. Police did find some axes among the farm tools that were covered in dried blood and human hair. Over time, they would also uncover the bones of several children scattered elsewhere across the ranch, all of which pathologists determined were those of male children. Inside the house, a library book checked out by one of the Winslow boys was also found, along with several letters written to the children's parents, a child's whistle, and several Boy Scout bandages. There was never any direct evidence found that could be tied to Walter Collins, though. Gordon Stewart Northcott's parents, Cyrus and Sarah Louise, skipped town after admitting that their son had told them about the murders months earlier. On September 20, 1928, Gordon was finally arrested in British Columbia. His mother, Sarah Louise, was later apprehended in Alberta, Canada. Police brought Northcott back to his Wineville ranch in December in an attempt to get him to reveal more information. There, he confessed to five murders, including that of Walter Collins, the Winslow brothers, and a Mexican boy named Alvin Gothia. Although later that same day, he recanted most of these confessions, instead claiming that he only killed Alvin Gothia. Soon after, Northcott's mother confessed to being involved in the murder of Walter Collins as well. Sarah Louise said that she had been the one who struck the final blow to Walter's skull before helping burying him in a hole behind the chicken coop. Sanford Clark said he was there, too, and that his grandmother told him that if they each took a swing at Walter, that in the eyes of the law, they would all be equally guilty. Sarah Louise Northcott would go on to be convicted and sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Walter Collins. In January 1929, the trial of Gordon Stewart Northcott began. Northcott fired several defense attorneys before deciding to defend himself in court. He admitted on the witness stand that the reason he abused so many young boys was because he loved them. He later called his own mother as a witness to testify on his behalf, but this did not go well. Sarah Louise Northcott made a series of bizarre confessions on the witness stand. This included telling them that she was actually Gordon's grandmother, stating that her husband had raped her daughter Winifred, and that Gordon was really Winifred's son. Gordon Stewart Northcott also confessed to being molested by his father. ...that he had been involved in an incestuous relationship with Sarah Louise. Sarah Louise expressed to the court how much she loved Gordon... ...and how she would do anything for him. On February 8, 1929, the jury found Gordon Stewart Northcott guilty of the first-degree murders of the Winslow brothers... ...as well as an anonymous victim. The judge sentenced him to death. Gordon Northcott was hanged on October 2, 1930. Gordon's mother, Sarah, pled guilty to killing Walter Collins... The judge spared Sarah Northcott the death penalty because she was a woman, instead sentencing her to life imprisonment. After learning that her son was sentenced to hang, Sarah begged the judge to hang her as well. Instead she ended up serving 12 years of her life sentence at Tehachapi State Prison before being paroled. She died in 1944. Although Sarah Northcott was ultimately convicted of murdering Walter Collins, Gordon was never tried for Walter's murder because of a lack of evidence. Some investigators believe Gordon Stewart Northcott may have been responsible for the murder of as many as 20 boys. But because so few intact skeletons were found on his property, many families never saw justice for their missing loved ones. One person who continued to hold out hope that Gordon Northcott hadn't murdered Walter Collins was Walter's mother, Christine. With no body ever being found, Christine remained hopeful there might be a chance her son could still be alive somewhere. She even exchanged letters with Gordon Northcott for a while, and he initially offered to provide her more information about her missing son. Although he recanted at the last minute and continued to profess his innocence in Walter's murder, Christine Collins remained encouraged by the unexpected appearance of another boy that Northcott had abducted and probably molested. Originally, the police had suspected the child was another murder victim, only they were surprised when he turned up alive. Christine Collins never gave up looking for her lost son throughout the rest of her life. She also made several more attempts to collect the thousands of dollars that were owed to her by the Los Angeles Police Department for falsely sending her to a mental institution. She never collected, and she died in 1964. In the aftermath, the town of Wineville wanted to put the whole affair behind them. They attempted to distance themselves from the gruesome murders by changing the town's name. On November 1, 1930, Wineville officially changed its name to Mira Loma, in 2010 and 2011, the newly formed cities of Eastvale and Jerupa Park co-opted parts of Mira Loma. No evidence remains of the ranch where several boys, including possibly Walter Collins, were murdered. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Randy, Rebecca, and Barry for signing up and helping support the show. You're all incredible. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes. If you're interested in becoming a patron of the show, I'll put a link in the show notes. Another great way you can help support the show that won't cost a dime is to subscribe and give us a 5-star rating or review wherever you get your podcast. Currently, we're on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and pretty much everywhere else across the podcasting multiverse. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere, I encourage you to follow us along on social media. Currently, we're on Facebook, Instagram, and that never-ending fun house we call Twitter. You can also send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com and send us topic suggestions or just let us know how we're doing. Or let me know how you're doing. I'd love to hear from you either way. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.